I do think we have uh, Brian on the line. Brian Hoke joining us, uh, MLB.com beat reporter for the New York Yankees. Follow him on Twitter at Brian Hoke, H-O-C-H. Brian, thank you so much for joining us here on Iron Sports. You got it. Happy to be on with you. Hey, so um, I'm Mike, a, a lifelong Yankees fan, so I got to you know preface it with that. I grew up on Long <laughs> okay. Island. I'll, I'll ask you a couple questions first, just about the team in general, before uh, Ira gets to your book. What is the latest on Aaron Judge? Because this seems to be like one of the quietest injuries I've heard. There's really no timetable here, and the Yankees are kind of flailing without him. That's it. Yeah, and it's uh, certainly not for lack of questions. Uh, that is the question that we've been asking more than anything, is that when is Aaron Judge going to get back? And uh, the Yankees have been pretty secretive with a timetable, which I think speaks to... Uh, the severity of yes. the injury. And so he's been uh, playing catch again and hitting off a tee, which is a good sign. But until he really gets out there and runs at full force, uh, I, I, he's not going to be able to get back on the field here. He mentioned uh, going out there and running at 10% is not going to help anybody. And so that's kind of a gauge of where he is right now. I think that if they can get him up to 50 or 60%, he's going to have to play through some pain here this year. And I think that, you know, they can get creative with what they do to, to get him on the field. Maybe you get him some special uh, orthotics you can put in your shoe, but uh, it, it's going to bother him through the rest of this year and probably won't get better until the off season, really. So uh, I, I talked to a sports orthopedic surgeon now here in New York and uh, he said the best case would probably be first week of August, uh, given the, the information we have. So, you know, fingers crossed, I think, because obviously this offense has cratered without Judge. I think it speaks to how valuable he is to this team in so many different ways, but uh, they have not been the same team without him, no doubt about it. No, that's what I was going to say next. The team batting average for the Yankees, third lowest in the league. The only teams hitting worse are Oakland and Detroit, and they're just not, you know, not the right franchises you want to be lumped in with. I mean, me from a fan's perspective, Brian, I think the season's a wash if we don't get uh, if we don't get Judge back. I can't see this team even making the playoffs, let alone making a run. Well, they may make the playoffs, but it's really hard for me to entertain an idea of them winning a championship if Judge doesn't come back. And it's just because... He's so valuable to this team. He helps them on offense, on defense, all the things he does in the clubhouse. You know, he's doing the best he can in his role as a captain being around the team right now, but there's only so much you can do from the bench. And so, um, you know, it's easy to point to the judge injury and say, well, that's why the Yankees aren't winning. But they have a whole team of other guys who are just not producing here. And I'm looking at John Carlos Stanton and DJ LeMahieu and Anthony Rizzo and uh, Josh Donaldson. I mean, you can kind of point your finger all around the field and say, this guy needs to pick it up, or that guy needs to pick it up, and uh, this is an opportunity where one of those team, one of those players, needs to strap it on and, and lead this team. And Judge did that so magnificently all of last year, wire to wire, especially in the second half when it seemed like guys were getting hurt or underperforming. Judge was the reason they went to the postseason at all last year. I'm convinced of that. So uh, you may be onto something there. I think uh, it's going to be an uphill battle here if they don't get him back and. Uh, still people around the team are optimistic that he will play again this year, and it's just a matter of when. So the um, the <laughs> the job to straighten this hitting hitting uh, lineup out has been filled. Sean Casey uh, announced earlier today as the new uh, new hitting coach for the Yankees. You want to tell us a little bit about Sean? A lot of people probably remember him as a player, but I, I you know I don't know much about his coaching background. Yeah, well, that's because there is on the speak of. Yeah. <laughs> on the MLB Network now for 15 years, so uh, he is coming in kind of just to see how this goes. And it's, it's a, a really interesting experiment for me um, that the Yankees are doing this because Brian Cashman has never fired a coach or a manager in season during his 25 years at the helm. And 
he comes from the background of George Steinbrenner, of course, who used to do it all the time. <laughs> and, uh, and pitching coach is gone, and today the hitting coach is gone, and now the manager's gone. That, that was life under George Steinbrenner. And it's been much more, um, I don't want to say calm, because nothing with the Yankees is ever calm, but I guess uh, more consistent in a, in a lot of ways. You know, they, they do fire coaches, but uh, they, they tend to wait until after the season to make any changes. And so uh, I think that this is a move that speaks to the urgency and, and maybe some desperation here of just, we got to try something. we got to do something on the Yankees' part because otherwise they, they see their season uh, going down the drain here. So this is definitely, uh, it's, it's, I'm curious to see how it plays out. Me too. Uh, Casey, Casey, of course, does have a bad big league background. He hit over 300 in the big leagues. But that doesn't necessarily always mean you can teach it to somebody. And so I, I am curious to see how this, this works here going from the TV studio to the dugout. But uh, the Yankees did try this a few years ago. Aaron Boone had never coached or managed at any level. And so it's clearly something the Yankees are comfortable with. Uh, before I turn it over to Ira, you want to give us a little bit of info on the Yankees' uh, you know, top draft picks that they've selected over the past few days? George Lombard Jr., uh, Kyle Carr, and then arguably one of the best baseball names ever, Rock Riggio. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you what, that last kid, uh, I was watching some highlights, and apparently he made the highlights real last year because he is uh, a little bit of a hot dog. Yeah, yeah he, he was kind of strutting around the bases, and there's some personality there, and I, I, the comparison that... Uh, somebody gave to me was that he's a little Dustin Pedroia like but I watched that video and I said I never saw Pedroia do that he's kind of pumping his fist and he goes around the bases and doing a little stutter step around third base so I don't know how that's going to play maybe more Papelbon-esque maybe yeah maybe but <laughs> not uh, a pitcher but Clint Frazier a little bit a little yeah. shade to Clint Frazier in there uh, so I am curious to see how that goes in pro ball but uh, yeah the, the Yankees uh, and I, I I'll be perfectly honest I haven't seen any of these kids play yet so uh, but you know that, that's the same thing every year you uh, you get all that new talent in the pipeline and uh, some of them are going to make it and some of them aren't and we'll see where how it all shakes out Ira, what do you have for Brian? So, Brian, I loved reading your book this weekend. I was on the beach looking, reading it, and I can't tell you how many people came up to me, you know, asking about it, saying they wanted to read it. So, I guess down here in South Florida, you're going to get a lot, so sell a lot of copies, a lot of interest, a lot of Yankee fans down here. But it, right. it really centers around the 62 and the home run record. And just for the listeners, just give an idea. In 1927, Ruth had 60 home runs. I think you said in the book, 8,000 people watched that. And then you had the 61, and then you have Sosa, McGuire, and all the other stuff. Sort of talk about what made this judge and what you what made sixty two just so everybody was following at the end of the season. Yeah, it really became a phenomenon, and it's one of the coolest things that I've ever had the opportunity to cover. And you touched on it there, and it's just the the majesty of these milestones. The record for a long time sixty in Babe Ruth that was the magic number, and then of course we know in nineteen sixty one Roger Maris hit sixty one, and that stood up until the late 90s, the early 2000s, when steroids kind of made a mockery of the record book. And so, uh, you know, we all watched with our eyes the Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and Barry Bonds home run chases. And if you ask me today who's the, who owns the home run record, I still say Barry Bonds at 73 because it happened. I, I, I'm not in the, uh, the habit of erasing history, but I just put it in a different box than I do Roger Maris. And I think that a lot of fans feel that way. And so I think that's what made last year so special was watching a guy like Judge who does it the right way, did it clean, uh, went out there and broke and pursued and broke that record. And it's just so perfect that you've got these three players in Ruth, 
Maris, and Judge, all of whom played for the same team, the Yankees, played the same position, right field, in the same city in different eras, and they've all now uh, held this record in sequence of 60 to 61 to 62. So that's really the connection that I wanted to explore in this book. And, uh, it, it uses the home run chase of last year, which of course was exciting. We all watched it. It was it was fantastic, but it uses that to really branch off and allows us to kind of talk baseball and get into a lot of different discussions around um, baseball and baseball history, which is something that I'm super passionate about, and I love doing the research for this project. Even got the, the meal that Roger Maris ate the night of his 61st home run. So I, I really did a deep dive during the offseason, not into just Judge, but uh, into Maris and baseball history. Yeah, and you mentioned he, the meal, and then he went right then to Mantle's uh, bedside because Mantle was in the hospital. So I didn't realize that. When you mentioned he was having dinner, I'm like, why? where's Mantle? And then you said he was in the hospital when he hit 61. That's right, because if you remember, the story of 61 is that Mantle and Maris were going back and forth, and we've all seen the Billy Crystal movie, and uh, there were so many fans that wanted either Babe Ruth to hold the record forever, or if somebody was going to break it, they, they were rooting against Maris because they wanted Mantle to be the guy. And so, yeah, we have in the book about uh, Mantle actually goes and gets a shot, uh, you know, basically amphetamine shot into his hip there, uh, 1961 medical technology. And, of course, it, uh, it got inflamed and infected, and he had a horrible wound in his uh, hip that really took him out of the home run chase. And, so, yeah, he's hospitalized as and watching on television as Roger Maris makes history and passes Babe Ruth. So, um, yeah, looking up all those details and getting that. And I spoke to two of the surviving members of the 1961 Yankees and Tony Kubek and Bobby Richardson. So uh, yeah, I really did my homework on this, and I'm proud of how it came out. I loved your insight into Aaron Judge growing up. He wasn't on travel teams, didn't just play baseball like <laughs> all the time. He literally was a three-sport star, football, basketball, baseball, and, and was in Linden, sort of under the radar of the sports world. Yeah, Linden, California, which is a very small town that until Judge started playing right field for the New York Yankees, I would guess that only a handful of people know about it. You know, it's mostly known for... It's the cherry capital of the world, uh, self-described, and so it's in it's in the San Francisco Bay Area, but it's inland. I mean, this is very rural, agricultural country, and uh, you know the stories that I got about Judge's upbringing. Obviously, he was always a physical specimen. He had the size. Um, he's biracial. He's adopted, so of course he was going to stick out in a small town. And in a lot of ways, uh, he was kind of this Clark Kent Superman uh, growing up in. A, a, in a small town, in a rural environment, and everybody knew him, of course, and everybody knew about his physical talents. There were t-ball teams that would <laughs> refuse to play the infield because he hit the ball too darn hard, and they were afraid of him. Uh, but, uh, yes, a three-sports star, and he was recruited to play college football and probably could have played in the NFL, honestly, with the size and the speed he has. But baseball was his passion, and he, always, he talks about loving the battle between the pitcher and the catcher, the kind of mental chess match there that you just don't get in these other sports. I mean, in football, in basketball, you don't you don't really get that, where you're trying to outthink somebody. And so uh, that was really where Judge's passion was. He loved baseball and wanted to pursue baseball as a career, and it, it was no lock. Um, you know, there were people who scouted him back then, and they, they referred to him as a newborn giraffe, and a guy who was kind of gawky and awkward and uh, still trying to find his way. But obviously in pro ball, uh, it, something started to click, and uh, it, once, once it started to come, it was a fast rise to New York. 
Right, and you mentioned about how he went though to Fresno State, and that's not like the. And so he starts at Fresno State and just developed at that school, and that's why sort of we had this whole with the contract issue because he was in college ball for three years and then was in the minors for a couple. So really, the contract he signed was going to be his final contract. But it was that time in Fresno State, which he, when you say in the book, he loved being at Fresno State, loved playing college baseball. Oh yeah, no, I mean, and I've talked to him about his his college experience, and he had fun in college. You know, he, he obviously being the the child of two educators he had to focus on his studies and he wasn't going out partying every single night but he had fun and uh, i think that college baseball was where he really kind of started to see his dream coming through there and um you know he it didn't wasn't until later that he moved to the outfield uh, that's where he moved to the outfield because he was a pitcher and a first baseman in high school and so that's kind of where we see the building blocks of aaron judge coming together and one great anecdote i can tell you from the book is that at Fresno State, his coach had a rule where if you talk to the press, the student newspaper or whatever it was, and you use the words me, my, or I, you, had, you got fined a dollar. And, <laughs> and you had to pay the coach a dollar. And so I think that's where, and over his three years at Fresno State, Judge never lost a single dollar to that. So I think that's where you get that kind of team-first mentality. It was drilled into him from a very early age, and certainly as a media member who's covered him since day one, literally, um, you know, he, he's not the kind of guy who's going to stand up there and say, hey, look at me, look what I did. That's never him. It's, it's look what we did. Uh, we need to do this together as a team. You know, we're going to fast track right now to the 2022 season when before the season started, he rejected the seven-year $213 million offer from the Yanks and then said, I'm not going to negotiate during the season. And then he was upset, though, when he sort of said, look, we're going to put it on the back burner. We're just going to play ball. But then Cashman ran out and said, oh, this is what we offered him. This is what he turned down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he thought that that was going to be kept quiet and in-house. And that's something that, that's a theme that with Aaron, that he's very private and he likes to keep things, especially business of baseball. He wants to keep that close to the vest. He'll, he'll talk to you day in, day out about, uh, you know, what happens between the white lines and making a play in the outfield or, or hitting a ball. But, uh, yeah, that kind of stuff, the personal, the off-field stuff, he, he is secretive about that. And so um, I think that you have to definitely earn his trust to get there. And I, I think that the Yankees uh, lost some of his trust there because, uh, you know, there is a difference of opinion on how that was uh, negotiated. And I know the Cashman told me that they had been up front with Judge and his agent about we are going to announce this to the press, but uh, Judge argues with that and says he was never told that. So that that did start a little bad blood there, and I think it simmered throughout the whole season, and, and maybe it provided some motivation, too, that, hey, I'll show you. I'm going to go out and have a great year, and you're going to pay me. Uh, I think that that might have been part of the equation, too. He'll never admit to that, but that's kind of the feeling I got, just uh, being a fly on the wall. And then you talk in the book about John Carlos Stanton, who we're familiar with down here in South Florida. Um, remember, he had 59 home runs one year also, but having him in that lineup that year, I mean, that one game I was at the Pirate game when he hit 60, remember, he was, he, his judge was the one there down four runs, hit a home run in the ninth inning, and then Stanton hit the grand slam to take it. So it was really, I think, that helped him when you, in the book, you bring out how Stanton being hit him behind him helped him throughout the year. Absolutely. And if John Carlos was healthy for the entire year, it would have been fun to see if they could have both gone after this record and been like the modern-day Maris and Mantle. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. And uh, Giancarlo, the story of his career has been uh, dealing with injuries. But when he's in there, man, uh, he hits the ball. It, it is ridiculous. He hit a ball at Yankee Stadium against the Cubs last week, by the way, and I'm, I'm flashing forward. But he hit the facing of the upper deck in left field, and I've never seen a ball hit up there and, and by anybody, including Judge. And 
I asked Stan about it. I said, have you ever even gone up there during batting practice? And he kind of laughed, and he's like, no. <laughs> so, uh, so I thought that was funny. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I think that having Stanton, who had been through a similar home run chase, and not necessarily the uh, attention that was paid to judge because it's New York City, because it's the Yankees, but uh, doing it down there in Miami, I think that Stanton had been through it, and Stanton felt the pressure at the end, and he fell short, but he did have an opportunity to hit 60 or 61 and uh, wasn't able to do it. So I think he could understand and be kind of a sounding board for Judge throughout that whole chase. He certainly leaned on him, leaned on Anthony Rizzo, uh, leaned on Garrett Cole to some extent, uh, just as veterans who have been around the game for a while have seen a lot of baseball and could kind of help guide him through it, even though when he's up there in the batter's box, nobody can help you except yourself. Well, a year ago, the Yankee season was completely different. They were 64 and 28, had a 60 and a half game lead. Uh, Stanton was the MVP of the All Star game, and Judge is nearing almost 40 home runs. Um, it was that great start of the season. The team was doing well, Judge is doing well, and then it sort of all fell apart. Not for Judge because he kept hitting the runs, but the team started to fall apart. Yeah, no, they dealt with so many injuries. And Cashman talks in the book about how that April, May, June was the healthiest run he's ever experienced as a GM. And that's why, you know, on paper, that's what you dream of. You, you write out your lineup in spring training, and you say, all right, if all these guys stay healthy, we are going to be great, and we're going to win the World Series. And uh, I think that for three months there, they just had magic. And then that kind of turned into a nightmare in July. And so uh, it was basically you had the last man standing, which Judge, in the middle of an MVP year, trying to drag his team toward the postseason while everybody else was kind of scuffling and, uh, a bunch of guys were getting on the IL, and you had to basically rely on your second line. And so I, I think that's what really stood out to me about that season was it's not Judge just chasing a record and swinging for the fences. It was him trying to be a complete player on offense and defense, taking his walks, making plays in the outfield, because his focus, and I think this helped him in a lot of ways, was it was never on I am going to break Roger Maris's record. It was always on what can I do every single day to help the Yankees win a game. And I think that simplified things for him, and it certainly endeared him to his teammates. And I think that may be part of why uh, the, the national attention really was so positive for Judge. I, I never heard anybody rooting against Judge the way they did against Maris. And uh, it, it seemed like everybody was overwhelmingly positive when, when Judge was in pursuit of this record. Well, I was down in St. Louis when McGuire had 61 and 62, and when Judge had 58 and 59 in Milwaukee, I think one of the problems he had, you know, playing the Pirates, they really didn't, they pitched, they tried, but he, he got some good shots against him and trying to hit that. But the Red Sox, nobody in the Red Sox was, was trying to break the record, too. And I think the Cubs pitchers, because Sosa was also on their team, I think at that aspect of it, that they had Sosa, they had another player, they were pitching right. to McGuire, and the Cardinal pitchers were pitching to Sosa, that helped McGuire and Sosa, whereas really it was it was sort of when he was so close to that, and people were like, "He's going to get seventy. He's going to get 73. Those last three were really, really hard to get. Yeah, and I think it, it, they've been hard historically for all of these guys who have chased this record. And so I think that uh, that's why we examine the history there. And it's like people have been here before, and it never gets any easier. And I think that as the attention continues to grow and the focus is there and the spotlight. I mean, at Yankee Stadium last year, I've never seen anything like it. You had. 45,000 people coming to the ballpark, and when, every time Judge would come up, everybody in the building stood. Everybody reached for their cell phone. They're, they're recording it, and they're quiet. The quiet part was the weirdest thing because it was kind of like uh, watching a golf tournament where <laughs> yes. everybody's – and the, the guy is trying to tee off, and you know, shh, 
And uh, and there was one game where Judge hits a double down the left field line. I remember this so vividly. And he's running into second base, and the crowd kind of goes, oh, at a home game at Yankee Stadium. And it was kind of like, wow, this is this is something totally different than I've ever seen. And it was also weird also that in some of the games, it was almost like the fans were rooting for the teams to tie it up in the ninth or take the lead so the Yankees then would have a chance to bat in the ninth when Judge's uh, number you know was in the lineup for the ninth I'm inning. Glad, I'm glad you mentioned that because, yes, they, they really, that really did happen. It was uh, teams, you know, the fans were sticking around just in case Judge was going to get another uh, chance to hit. And so if, if there was a lead blown in the late innings, you know, you typically would be upset about that, but there was almost kind of a little, yeah, but if he blows the lead, then Judge is going to get another chance, so let's stick around for that. The other part of the book I, I loved was when you talked about the catching the ball and how the ball, and you mentioned in 61, I guess Maris said to the fan, he goes, put it up for auction and someone I know is going to buy it, so just make some money off it. I was in uh, left field when McGuire hit 62, um, I, but it was under, of course it went into the bullpen, so I, I didn't get it, it wasn't close to it, but you talk about some of that in terms of, of how the games, how they gave the tickets out and actually who caught 62. Yeah, and actually, that's one of the most interesting parts of the book to me is the guy who caught 62. His name's Corey Humans, and of course, he hit it down in uh, Texas, and there's the guy who lives in the suburbs of Dallas. And the, the general media spin on it the, after it that, that I saw and everything that I read at the time was, oh, there's a rich guy, and he caught the ball, and he's just going to get richer. He's probably going to sell it for $3 million. And, like, and I feel like that really fueled the fan reaction toward him, and uh, I did a complete 180 after talking to him and getting to know him a little bit and hearing his story. He wasn't, I mean, yes, he worked for an investment company, but he was kind of in middle management and uh, certainly wasn't like a, the, the president of the company and uh, drove a kind of modest four-door sedan and lived in an apartment. And he caught this ball and um, obviously it's life-changing money. And uh, I, I just kind of the, the decisions he wrestled with after uh, catching that ball, his life completely changed, and it was fun and delirious for about 10 minutes, and then reality starts to set in because uh, his, na- his name and address are out there on the Internet. And people are, uh, his wife called him and said, hey, there's some weird people on our lawn, and I don't know if they're supposed to be here, and he's kind of thinking ahead, like, I don't own a gun, I don't, you know, I don't have a knife, like, how am I going to defend myself if I have to? Is somebody going to try and, like, rob me for this ball and so uh there, there's a lot of wild thoughts that go through your mind when you catch a ball like that and, and i think uh you know we all dream about getting a lottery ticket right and I, I think we don't think about all right once i get the winning lottery ticket then what do i do and so uh it it really kind of made me uh understand a little bit more of what he was going through during that time and uh i, I think that that was definitely a, a part of the book where I thought I knew that story and only by talking to him did I get a completely different story and a better understanding of it. And the one great thing about your book and the final question I was going to ask is about the contract at the end. After he did that, then it's sort of like, is he going to stay? Is he going to San Francisco? Is it San Diego? And I've been waiting for someone to really break that down. And, and if, if people just want to read the book for the final 50 pages of the book where you went through the whole contract negotiations, it was really interesting in terms of how he decided to go and stay with the Yankees and not go to San Francisco and not go to San Diego. And you mentioned that Tampa even put an offer out there. So Yeah, me, that's right. Yeah, that hasn't been previously reported so that was new reporting there that i was able to uncover in the course of this so but thank you for saying that that's awesome um yeah i think that uh, it, it really is fascinating the business of baseball and I, I was able to talk to all of the key players involved there at the end to kind of paint the picture and, and what really went through his mind and 
Uh, in real time, I had thought it was probably about an 80% chance that Judge was going to stay. I felt that he wanted to stay in New York. He had unfinished business there. But once you reach free agency, you never know. I mean, we saw it with Freddie Freeman uh, a couple years ago here where I thought he was going to be an Atlanta Brave for life, and then it didn't work out that way, and now he's playing for the Dodgers. So uh, I think that nothing's ever a guarantee once you get the free agency. And uh, Judge, in his mind, he never wanted to look back with any regrets. He did not want to have any stone unturned there and, and kind of be looking back three or four years down the line and saying, hmm, I wonder if I had gone to the Giants what that would look like. Or, uh, you know, I, sh- I probably should have gone on that ballpark trip and done the whining and dining. So the whining and dining is the fun part. Sure, show me the ballpark, show me the facilities. Uh, then the, the Padres came in with ridiculous money, 14 years, $414 million, and uh, at that point, you have to get on the plane and at least talk to them and go go listen to the offer. But at the end of all of that, um, it, it's crazy money no matter what location you were going to pick. And I think for Judge, the pull of the Bay Area wasn't as great as he thought it was going to be. And so he and his wife got together and they looked at each other and they said, you know, we belong in New York. We're Yankees. And so uh, once they figured that out, that, then the rest was just kind of, uh, hammering out the uh, the logistics of the deal and how Steinbrenner did it uh, on the phone directly with Judge and said, all right, what's it going to take to keep you? And Judge said, I would like a ninth year. And he said, done, fine. So we'll send over the paperwork. It's done. Brian, so once he had decided it was a Yankee, it was easy. <laughs> Brian, I absolutely loved your book. It's I encourage anyone, Yankee fan, non-Yankee fan, baseball fan, get the book. You can get Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everything. It's called 62, uh, Aaron Judge, the New York Yankees, and the Pursuit of Greatness. So, Brian, thanks so much, and enjoy watching the uh, Home Run Hitting Contest and the All-Star Game coming up the next two days. Yeah, you got it. Thanks, guys, for having me. I appreciate it. Brian Hoke. You can follow him on Twitter, at Brian Hoke, H-O-C-H. Thank you so much for popping on Ira on Sports.